weekend, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Last, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And Brian, today we are welcoming back to the program our very first guest on the KFR podcast, the legendary promoter himself, Jerry Jarrett. Our very first guest, also now our most frequent guest, Jerry Jarrett. Last week on the program, Scott, we put Jim Cornette on the stand and questioned him about this Mill Moscarous Monday Night Mystery. This week, it's Jerry Jarrett's turn to get on the stand and answer the questions by you, the Inquisitor, in this here scenario. And after that, we will have a follow-up conversation with author Mark James, whose book has really reignited this whole controversy, this whole search for the truth about Mill Moscarous's Monday Night in Memphis. Was it him? Or was it not? We will get to the bottom of that hopefully today on this episode of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And not only that, but Jerry Jarrett will also be sharing rare insight into his relationships with some of the key members of the National Wrestling Alliance in its heyday. So it looks like a good one. If we're going to get it all in, we better get going. We'll be right back after this message. Snap out of it and get to Captain D's Seafood Celebration. Try the 4 by shore platter with Blue Bay Crab Cake, the ultimate premium shrimp platter, and more. Now at Captain D's. Eat upstream. We are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling, uh, and it is my distinct honor to call to the witness stand once again as we attempt to unravel this unsolved mystery of Memphis the great Mill Mascaris Monday night mystery, if you will. I'm talking about the legendary promoter himself, Jerry Jarrett. Welcome back, Jerry. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be back. Okay. Um, and <laughs> as you know, last week uh, we had uh, Mr. James E. Cornett on the witness stand. And uh, to say he was a hostile witness, uh, would that would be an understatement. Um, despite your convincing testimony, he remains steadfast in his belief that uh, it was a ringer on that night. January 29th, 1979, Mill Mascaris, uh, you and I both know that that was indeed the real deal, who was teaming with Austin Idol in a stretcher match against Jackie Fargo and Jerry Lawler. I, and Jerry, I, I think the biggest point that uh, Cornette raises is the fact that not, not that Aaron Rodriguez uh, appeared in Memphis, uh, but the fact that he was so cooperative and willing to do the stretcher job when he has a sort of a reputation for being a bit of a prima donna and not really wanting to sell that much. I, I think that's what's what Jim is having a hard time wrapping his head around. Can you explain, first of all, for the people who don't know, uh, can you explain exactly how this booking came about uh, and your relationship with uh, Salvador Luteroth, the uh, the legendary uh, Mexican promoter who helped arrange it? Uh, yes. Salvador and I got to be buddies at a National Wrestling Alliance convention in New Orleans. And he, his wife and my wife and the two of us had dinner on a a couple of occasions, or it may have been a lunch and a dinner. But anyway, we uh, we got to know each other, and uh, 
and I found him to be a charming, nice guy. And he extended an invitation. Salvador promoted boxing and wrestling. And uh, during our conversations, he knew that I was a fight fan, or he found out that I was a fight fan. So anyway, he invited us to stay at his villa in Acapulco. So my wife and I flew down. He was very gracious and uh, had us a driver and just really the royal treatment the whole time. I believe you mentioned that there's also a, there's also a story about the driver. Can 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 you share that with the folks? Yeah, as well? yeah. I I looked out of the window, and the, his place had a wall around it, <laughs> and the car sat inside the wall. And uh, I looked out, and uh, the driver was sitting there, uh, and it was like two or three o'clock in the morning. So I put on my clothes and I went down and I said, you don't have to stay here all night. Uh, We're not going to go anywhere until breakfast. And uh, he said, oh, no, Mr. Luderoff told me to stay the entire time and let in case you wanted to, you know, go out and needed the car. So, um, you know, I was up. And I sat there and I talked with him and I said, have you been driving for Mr. Luderoff long? And he said, oh, no, this is the first time. I said, uh, what, what do you, how often do you work? He said, oh, I'm, I'm the manager at El Presidente Hotel here in Acapulco. And that's one of the nicer hotels in Acapulco. So Salvador, you know, being so gracious, didn't want to risk, uh, I guess, just having a regular driver. (laughs) So he had the guy that was the manager of the hotel sit there. And so that's the background of our relationship. And Salvador, I didn't call from Mil Mascara. Salvador called me and said he'll be here. And I literally changed the card to put him in. Okay. And so that your fans can follow the story a little bit more, Salvador Luderoff was a huge star in Mexico. But he didn't really mean anything in Memphis. The Memphis fans were not aware of his background. So, you know, I just I did some promotion to say that this is a big star of wrestling and and movies. Uh, Mil Mascaris was in some movies, right? In Mexico, yeah. And uh, so anyway, I changed uh, the program and added it changed the single match and added him in to the tag match and made it a stretcher match. Okay. And when we got there, uh, 
Neil Mascaris asked me, what are you going to do? And I said, well, we're, uh, you know, we got to put somebody on the stretcher and we'll put idle. And he said, well, I, you know, I won't be back and I'm just passing through. Uh, I'll be glad to do it. And I said, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was very casual, nonchalant. Uh, it, you know, it really wasn't a big deal. Yeah. But the, the fans that are historians, uh, like yourself, feel like it was a big deal. And I'm not good at picturing time, so I don't know Jimmy's status or how long he'd been in Memphis at that time. Or well, yeah, uh, he his first uh, assignment uh, shooting the matches at the Mid South Coliseum was in 1977, and you know he remembers that vividly because I, I explained last week that like if you lived in New York. Uh, it, it going to the, it's like going to the Yankee stadium for the first time. You know, if you grew up in Memphis, going to the matches at the Mid-South Coliseum, it had that special aura. And, you know, just like he remembers 1977 vividly, your first card after you broke away from Goulas, uh, at the Coliseum with Rocky Johnson and Harley race working on top, you know, I vividly, re- now I was young, grant <laughs> granted, I was eight years old. Uh, or about to turn it. I was seven and three quarters. Um, but I, I just, I, I have vivid memories, uh, of that evening. And not only that, but, uh, the next day, uh, in his Tuesday afternoon sports break, Jack Eaton, uh, showed the finish up to the match. And you, you and I have talked about this. You, you didn't show it on Memphis TV because you had too much respect, uh, for Mill. And, you know, the fact that he was so gracious and willing to do the stretcher job. Uh, you didn't show it. Uh, so that's why it never aired on, on Memphis TV. Yeah. And now tell me again so that I'll get the, my date straight in my mind. Okay. When did this match take place? <clears throat> this was January. <laughs> it's so funny how I, I have this burned into my brain. Uh, <laughs> January 29th, 1979. And the, the ironic part about this, Jerry, is that uh, you know it, it came in, it I had I had written about this match before only because uh, it, it was unique in that you know Mill Mascaris never appeared in the territory again he he was merely passing through um, and the fact that he did he was the one who took the ride on the stretcher uh, you know he has a reputation for being not so cooperative and not selling and and all of this kind of stuff. Um, after hearing your convincing account of it, I just assumed that, hell, you know, maybe he enjoyed playing heel for once. You know, the guy was always booked as a baby face. He knew that, you know, he wasn't going to be back. He knew it wasn't going to hurt him. And, you know, maybe he just looked at this as has an experience and had no problem making the local guys look good. Uh, and he certainly did. Well, I'm, and I'm sure that a, Factor of it was that Salvador Luderoff, his boss, said, You don't disrespect Jerry Jarrett. He's a personal friend of mine. Mm. And what this would have meant was, you know, if they tell you to jump through your butt, jump. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, you know, it's, 
that's the way it was back in those days. Mm-hmm. There was, uh, you know, if I sent somebody down to Eddie Graham and Eddie called and was unhappy about him, I never booked him again the rest of my life. Yeah. And they knew that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Jimmy had been around a couple of years. Yeah, he had been around a couple of years. Um, he uh, did not know uh, about this booking, so he was not there, unfortunately, to shoot photographs. And I have not—I don't know who else was taking pictures on the Memphis end at that time. There, there appeared to be no photos. I'm hoping that a fan out there—we've actually—I've <laughs> actually like recruited fans who were there that night who may uh, have some pictures uh, to 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 help me out with my oh. with my case, but. Oh, so so let me get this straight. Jimmy was still taking pictures at that time. Yes, uh, but he you know, wasn't. He wasn't managing. No, he was not managing yet. Uh, he, uh, I believe you. So, I believe he broke in around so, eighty-two. So he would have been persona non grata. <laughs> well, beyond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think you shocked him last week when you called him a mark. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> no. well, he most certainly was. Yes, <laughs> because when he showed up at Memphis and annoyed me in the coffee room, <laughs> coffee break room, and I said. Uh, you know, show up next week. I'm going to let you manage. You are? Why? I said, because if you get as much heat with the fans as you have me sitting in this room with your blabber mouth, you'll draw a million dollars. Uh, and I was, I was right. You know what? You know what? So, you know what's fun, You know what's funny about that, that, Jerry? Jerry Lawler told me the exact same thing <laughs> when I was a referee. <laughs> Oh goodness! But I think I find that humorous that Cornette would be an authority from his picture-taking position. (laughs) Well, yeah, and um, you know, to to his to his point, um, I I guess because he actually uh, when you know when he was booking for WCW later. Uh, he had to work with Mill on a finish for a Clash of Champions show that was being held in Houston. Uh, and he found him to live up to his reputation of being uncooperative. However, everyone forgets the fact, the, the relationship, you know, that you had with Salvador Luteroff and that that was very, that was likely very key to Mill being so cooperative, cooperative and Cornette and the people in WCW didn't have that same cooperation and didn't have that relationship with Salvador Luteroff. So I think that really clears up a lot. And I, I guess, you know, your story was, was largely accepted, uh, because you've been forthright in admitting in the past that you used ringers. Uh, you've explained that, you know, D- uh, Dickie Steinborn was Mr. Wrestling, uh, that uh, I believe Jerry Stubbs uh, worked the territory, has the mass superstar. And I think, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, and you may not even remember that. That was in 1985. I think that was more to do to set him up with a feud with Dundee over the superstar name than it was necessarily to try to deceive the folks into thinking it was Bill Eady. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. We, you know, back... Eddie Marlin, my father-in-law, 
just got out of HCA, which is a place you go to from the hospital to kind of rehab. And he and I were reminiscing. And the very first time I met Eddie Marlin is I took him, he rode with me to Memphis to wrestle as the mummy. And the mummy was in a uh, loser gets unmasked uh, kind of situation. You know, that was the stipulation of the match. And so the way, and I was just refereeing at that time, and Roy Welch, the way they set the match up is uh, the scuffling hillbilly. The hillbillies broke up, and I think his name was Garrett. Anyway, he was, he had been wrestling as the mummy. Well, they couldn't very well unmask the mummy and have the fans go, oh, he's the good guy, the scuffling hillbilly. <laughs> so it was a two out of three fall match. And Billy Garrett wrestled the first two falls and hurt his back taking a bump over the top rope. So he limped to the dressing room severely. And then, of course, they wrapped Eddie up as a mummy, and he limped back to the ring for the third fall. And, uh, you know, naturally, the first time he got in the ring, he got pinned because of his hurt back. Right. And they unmasked Eddie Marlin as the mummy. (laughs) And... You know, we did whatever was necessary so that the people could suspend disbelief. Right. It wasn't that we were trying trickery. Uh, Wrestling has lost something today, and that's just not my opinion. I talked to hundreds of people Mm. because they're not allowed to suspend disbelief. Right. And and it wasn't that we protected the business. Common sense will tell you is you can't jump off of the top rope with a knee in somebody's throat and that guy get up and make come back and win the match. So it was really not that different in the moves we made. Uh, I learned the hard way. Uh, in a little scuffle on the school grounds, that drop kicks really didn't work. <laughs> I think I had that same experience. I got in and because I was a wrestling fan, you know, Tex Riley had always knocked people's head off with his drop kicks. So I drop kicked this kid, and of course he just moved out of the way, and I fell on my back. And Fortunately, there were some people to pull him off of me. He was <laughs> hammering me pretty good. Oh, did but you did you reach for a gimmick? Over, <laughs> yeah. Overall, we made every effort to suspend disbelief, and so yes, we would swap people around if we uh, 
if we had a good reason, particularly with mass people, we would put somebody in it and substitute them. Right. But if you go back and study the card and the program that was going on in that time, it really didn't, it probably didn't draw a dime or it may have cost us money changing it from a single to a tag. Well, no, it, the, the house actually uh, was up uh, for, from the previous week. Um, uh, not, not a lot, but I think, I think it was, a uh, was a few grand. Uh, so yeah, it, I mean, so it definitely triggered something, but what's interesting is the fact that, uh, the rematch the following week, uh, you know, Mil Mascaris has this big international reputation, but as you said, locally, uh, unless you were a, a mark like myself who bought all the magazines, <laughs> uh, it probably didn't mean that much on, on a, on a grand scale, uh, just, just because of the fact that, that Mill had never appeared in the territory before. And this was really before people had cable TV. So they would have had no way to, to see this guy. Um, but the following week, Idol came back with Tojo as, as his partner and nearly drew the exact same house <laughs> uh, because, yeah. because Tojo, Tojo and Jackie Fargo were legends uh, in Memphis and Mil Mascaris was not. Right, right. Yeah. And I guess that's Cornette raised that point. He he was saying uh, that this was one of those occasions where they needed to they wanted to pop the house. And you guys always did a masterful job of not relying on Jackie too much. It was maybe done once a year where a baby face was in trouble. And Lawler, had, had, and, and I believe the stretcher job or the stretcher match came about because uh, Lawler had that bleeding ulcer, that sideline. He nearly, you know, he passed out, in, I believe, in an airport, uh, had internal bleeding, and he went to the hospital. And, and the story that was told on television was that Idol had kicked him in the gut. And and calls this uh, this internal bleeding and sit, basically sent him to the hospital. So that of course set up a stretcher match uh, to you know yeah. obviously take the you know obviously the stretcher was going to lead to an ambulance that would take the person to the hospital. Um, and if you're in a match like that, you don't need a guy like Jack Briscoe as your partner. You need a street fighter like Jackie Fargo. So yeah. Cornette was claiming that they had the date on Fargo. They got him to come in, but who can we get to tag with Idol? Let's just put a guy under a mask. I guess he thought, I guess he's saying that you can go out and buy a Mill Mascaris outfit <laughs> off the rack somewhere. Um, <laughs> because, because Mark James, uh, you know, saw, he remembers seeing the clip uh, on Channel 5 News at 5.30 on Tuesday, which I was hoping somebody out there might at least have that on tape, but no one has come forward yet. And we all agree he is wearing the classic Mill Mascaris outfit, you know, and Mill had a Mill yeah. had a certain and not only did he have a certain look, he had a certain physique, you know, that that I mean and and Idol Austin Idol. I, I interviewed Austin Idol. He says it was the he said it was the real deal. And he actually wrestled the guy in Japan about nine months later. And he said, Yeah, well, same same, same guy. Yeah, I can't imagine that you would disparage the word of our picture taker, James E. Cornell, <laughs> when the guy that wrestled him and the promoter were in conflict with the picture taker's account. <laughs> right. 
Well, yeah, and it's like I just don't like what what do we have to gain by by making up such a story? And you know, one thing that uh, that I want to ask you about, and and I broached the subject with you last week, uh, the fact that Francisco Flores. Uh, his name appears on the Tennessee Athletic Commission report. Now, uh, before I even spoke to you, we had been talking about the theory that, well, yeah, I mean, Mill's only going to be in, in the territory for one night. Why having buy a license? Now, granted, I think well, a license was what twenty or twenty-five bucks back then. Yeah. Okay, but I think it was probably less about the money and more about just the hassle. You know, you got this international. Do you really want to have him? You know, fill out this paperwork, 25 bucks, get a license when you already have Flores on file. I mean, it certainly seemed like a logical explanation to me. And when I suggested that to you, you said that was exactly right. Yeah, that, that was right. Yeah. We uh, we often did that because I really did not approve of the athletic commission. I mean, you know, I couldn't come out publicly like Vince did in New mm. York, and say, you know, we're theater, we're not sport. And uh, that's how Vince beat the Athletic Commission in New York. Yeah. You know, he just said, hell with it, I'm theater. Right. That had to, that had to, so, that, that, that had to be like a stiff kick to the gut, I would imagine, when, when McMahon did that. Oh yeah, and we th- you know naturally we thought it was terrible because again the suspension of disbelief was our code our motto. Uh, somebody started the term kayfabe, but uh, it was it was really so that the, for the fans' sake mm-hmm. they didn't they didn't want us to expose. The business, Terry. Uh, really quickly, uh, it's 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 interesting because we had sort of laid this topic to rest. Uh, you know, the the book came out with Mark James, where he has all this information, and uh, you know, and it, it actually, it, you know, it looked fairly convincing. We just kind of floated the theory around, but then I, <laughs> and I was joking with Mark about this. I was looking through his uh, one of his record books. Uh, Tennessee record book, 1973 to 1979. And I I looked at the date, January 29th, 1977, the night in question of the Mill Mascaris mystery. And Francisco Flores was booked that same night in Birmingham, Alabama, working for Goulas, second from the top, tagging with Bobby Eaton against the Freebirds. And yes. the main event that night, you know, I, I know Nick Goulas... Every week was the greatest card ever signed, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. but this may have been the best card he had signed in in at, for the Batwell Auditorium because it was to be the first appearance, I believe, of Harley Race defending the NWA World Title against Randy Savage, which would have been a hell of a match. Uh, and he had three dates on Harley, and Harley no showed them all, uh, I believe, because of a legit family medical emergency. I don't know if this is the same excuse he gave Paul Bosch when he missed those dates that led to all the controversy uh, or if it was legit. And Tommy Wildfire Rich was called in from Atlanta 
uh, for emergency duty, and he filled in on a couple of those nights. Um, and what, so what is the likelihood? Let's say you did want to bring in Francisco Flores as a ringer. He worked the night before for Goulas, second from the top. He had, you know, apparently had a hot program going against uh, Gordian Hayes. Uh, what are the odds of him skipping, no-showing that card in Birmingham to work for you instead, then rejoining the Goulas crew two nights later uh, in the same spot, working with Bobby Eaton against the Freebirds and continuing on uh, and working for Goulas for the rest of the year? What a, <laughs> Would that be possible, and could he have gotten away with that um, during those times? I, it, it doesn't seem likely to me. No, absolutely not. And the reason is there was tremendous competition between Nick Goulas with his territory, which was known as the Birmingham Inn, and Roy Welch, which was known as the Memphis Inn. They both ran on Monday night. And then uh, what ended up being my territory or my end of the territory, we go to Louisville, Tuesday, Evansville, Wednesday, Lexington, Thursday, back to Tupelo and Jonesboro on the weekend and in between TV. So there is zero chance of that happening. First of all, it was would have been terribly illogical. Why would you substitute two cards instead of one? Right? Right. Right. Um, and I'm I'm trying to think in that time. I think Bill Costello was here. Um, probably Pepe Lopez. Well, you know, well, but... yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, Cornette, when I initially asked him about this card, he goes, oh, no, 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 no. That wasn't Mil. That wasn't Mil Mascaris. That was Pepe Lopez, and I'm like, well, Jim. Unfortunately, Pepe Lopez had been killed a couple of years before, so I, oh. I, I think he was. I think he was saying that mostly in jest. But uh, I just, uh, I know, I know that by the end of 1979, uh, I believe you had sort of, you know, the war was won. Uh, Nick had lost practically the shirt off his back at that point, I, I believe, and you guys started. Started working together again. Started trading talent at least. I know. I know Lawler defended the CWA title uh, against Jackie. Uh, gosh, maybe weeks after he won it in November of '79. Uh, yeah. And, uh, so I, I know the fences were starting to mend at that point, uh, but not in January of '79. Correct. I mean, was there still some animosity there? You know, I am the world's worst at dates. Okay. And the other thing you have to remember is I've had three careers in my lifetime mm -hmm. in the wrestling business. And then from that, I went into construction and building houses and schools. And, and so that represents 10 or 12 years. And then for the last 10 years, I've been in the real estate business. So all of that is a cloud to my yeah. old 75-year-old brain. <laughs> right. And, yeah. you know, and it's, I don't and it's, remember. Yeah, it's just one night. It's, it's, 
Yeah, I don't remember dates at all. Now, incidences, uh, I do. Uh, you know, Lawler's quest for the title that I took a lot of pride in. That it was a wrestling program that, you know, today will go two or three shows. That program lasted a year. Mm-hmm. And so things like that I can remember. I can remember bringing Ernie Ladd in and Bobo Brazil and The Sheik and Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder. You know, I remembered all those incidences. And then I remember Mil Mascaris because of my friend Salvador Luterov. And so things that have a personal relation to me, you know, I rem- I recall, you but know, I just don't know dates. Right. Uh, I I um I sent Mill Mascaris. I you know I tried to track down Mill Mascaris, which is a, a little difficult. Uh, but I sent him a note on Facebook. Uh, what appears to be his official page. It's got thirty five thousand followers. Uh, and it and they continually update it. So I, th- I believe it's probably somebody running the, the the page for him. However, what I. <laughs> And this could be a coincidence, but I sent him a question saying, uh, do you recall Salvador Luroth lining up a shot for you in Memphis? I know it was years ago, but if you have any memories, I, I would appreciate it if you would share it. And two hours later, there was a picture posted on his Facebook page, of this really nice graphic of Salvador Luroth and Mil Mascaris. <laughs> And I believe it was like some kind of like on, it's a celebration that they're having uh, to on, to honor the heritage of both men. But I just found that that to be an odd coincidence because clearly there was a relationship there between those two. Yes, yes, they were. Well, I mean, you know, Mil Mascaras for Salvador Luteroff's Jerry Lawler to me. Mm. I mean, you know, they're tied together. And I have to imagine that if. Jerry went there um, that he would pretty much do whatever Salvador asked him to do. Realizing realizing the relationship that you two had together. And I guess, I guess another thing too, that, that uh, I think people sort of laugh about a little bit because Salvador Luteroth's name was mentioned on Memphis TV. When you guys did the, the, uh, the angle with Austin Idol appearing as, uh, uh, El, El Diamante Negro, the black diamond. <laughs> when, uh, when Jerry Lawler had supposedly won the most popular wrestler in Mexico award and he ambushed him and, and the whole deal. Um, the, yeah. The, yeah. So, uh, I guess people are like, Oh, Salvador Luteroth. I mean, that was just used at an angle. I'm like, no, there was actually a relationship there uh, between Jerry and the uh, the legendary promoter. And you got along. You got along great. Uh, unlike, I don't think Nick was too popular with members of the alliance. Uh, but you seem to really have uh, an engaging personality that that reflected well with guys like Eddie Graham, Jim Barnett. And not only that, you had a track record. I mean, you ba- you basically won the wrestling war, right? For for Barnett. Yes, yes. And, uh, well, the big thing was, it's, you know, it's sad now because all of my peers have, have died and passed on. But uh, I 
I was young in the business. And at the Alliance meeting, uh, Mike Graham, Eddie's son, uh, Terry and Dory Funk, uh, Funk's son, they wasn't allowed in the meeting. So I had to take a lot of ribbing from the young guys that were my age. But, you know, everybody could come in for the general meeting, but then they would call the alliance to order and all the kids and had to leave. <laughs> and uh, But in those meetings, you know, I always deferred and showed tremendous respect because at that point in time, you know, I didn't have a lot of money and I'm sitting in the room voting on issues and everybody else in the room except me is a multimillionaire. So, you know, it wasn't that I was being cocky. On the other hand, Nick didn't have the wealth of the rest of the people, but tried to act like the biggest of the big shots, which was just his nature. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think I've told you about my relationship with Vince McMahon Sr., calling me about a week before he died. And, uh, you know, then Barnett buys the Georgia Territory and flies to Hendersonville, and he hires me to run it for him. Uh, I went out and uh, helped Fritz von Erich, uh, Jack Atkinson, helped him set up uh, videos because... And one of them became very famous, the Freebirds video. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I sent Mike Shields, my cameraman, up to help or to run um, Vern Gagne's uh, TV deal. And as a side note, Mike Shields was head of the department, and Eric Bischoff went and got their coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and he may have been underqualified for that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it, I mean, you know, I'm going way, way, way back in time. Yeah. But I'm trying to convey to you that there was a real brotherhood among the National Wrestling Alliance members. And that's why when Nick and I had a fight, and that was unprecedented, that they uh, they gave me a membership. Right. With Gula saying, no, how can you give him a membership? That's my territory. And Sam Munchen said, no, I don't think so. What, what Did that largely have to do, not only the fact that Nick uh, everyone realized that maybe uh, obviously was, was a bit egotistical and tried to come off like a big shot and be something that he wasn't. Uh, was there also, in addition to that personal factor, were the members aware that he basically stole $50,000 from you? 
Oh yeah, Eddie Graham saw to that that everybody knew. Yeah. That was I mean, I'm sure that was a factor, but the biggest factor was that uh Dory and Terry would go back and tell their daddy how nice I was to them and and uh Andre the John would go back and tell Bent Senior what a pleasure it was to work for me and well until uh, until that little midget came along <laughs> well, yeah. um, can you tell but, me this, can you tell to, I don't want to get too off topic cause, and, and, and this is very important to, about the brotherhood but uh to tell you to tell you that kind of explains the relationship yeah that Vince senior was so angry <laughs> about that article, not about what happened, because I, he knew what happened. You know, it was a disqualification, but I think it was Bill Apter that wrote the article. But he let me have Andre back several times after that. And, and uh, you know, they're the things. Eddie Farrett, the Sheik, I came and worked for me. So when it came time to vote uh, the membership, as a matter of fact, they had to caucus because a lot of the members wanted to kick Nick out and put me in. And I, I came back in the room before the final vote, and I said, uh, I don't have any problem at all with you giving us both the membership. Hmm. So that's what you did. Okay. And you were just going to sort of, uh, cause I'm sure that Nashville was, was attractive to you. Did you, did you just know in your gut that not only could you continue with the success you had in Memphis, but did you also have a feeling that initially Nick was going to probably run himself out of business in Nashville and you would just take it when he was, when he was done? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Nick died without any money. Yeah. It's sad. And, and my mother paid for his funeral. Wow. So there is, it was a convoluted, mixed-up relationship. So when when I found out that Nick was not going to run anymore, uh, I called him and said, I'd like to buy Nashville and Chattanooga from you. And he said, uh, well, what are you willing to pay? I said, well, I'll, I'll give you $125,000. Now, that's not any money today, but you got to remember at the time, yeah. mm-hmm. that was a lot of money, and I knew that would last him for a while. So, you know, I, I paid him for Nashville and Chattanooga. When you, when, you pro- when you really probably didn't even have to. Oh, no. I mean, you know, it was he wasn't running anymore. 
Uh, one quick question, Jerry, because uh, <laughs> you know uh, the Reverend Billy Graham passed away uh, yesterday, and a lot of people started talking about superstar Billy Graham, which led to some discussion, at least on Memphis uh, message boards and and on my uh, my site uh, about the CWA title. Now, when you created that in '79, we, we've talked about the reasons why you did it. Um, was there any heat at all with the NWA members who who had backed you two years earlier? Um, I, I guess beginning really in '78 when when you reached the agreement with Vern and switched the title affiliation to AWA, which really a, a lot of fans make a big deal about that. But really, there was only one championship recognized by the NWA, really. that It was the world's championship. All these other NWA Southern champions and tag team champions and NWA floor, they were all just whatever. You could slap the NWA name on virtually any championship. But I'm just kind of curious, uh, creating your own world title, that, that seems like something that might have uh, annoyed the alliance. Uh, was that the case or did, did you hear from it? Like, no. A guy no, like Eddie Graham? At that time, uh, the NWA was going downhill very fast. And I I had a bone of contention because they wouldn't allow Lawler, who was at the time the best talent in the country, they wouldn't allow him to win the belt. So, and my alliance was with Vince McMahon Sr. and and uh, Vern Gagne and uh, Eddie Graham. And that was kind of the power structure of the business anyway at that time. So, I, I did it because I wanted Lawler to be the world champion. So 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 nobody said anything. Did did you did you bounce the idea off Eddie I mean, and this may be a silly question but because uh, you know uh, is it is this something that you would have to maybe bounce off Eddie Graham say hey I'm going to create my own world championship? No, no. I mean I'm sure I called him and probably called Fritz uh You know, um, Leroy McGurk was a friend of mine out in Tulsa, Bill Watts. So I'm sure I called my friends and told them. than what I was going to do. Well, and you, you've told the story for me, and I, and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but can you share really quickly, I, I believe you mentioned to me that maybe the idea all along was to uh, merge the CWA title with the AWA championship, uh, whereas Lawler and, and Nick, who had incredible chemistry from the word go, uh, probably haven't. Yeah. You know, whenever they got together, it's probably one of the best matches uh, in, in the country. Uh, was was that the plan? And and how much of that plan did Vern Gagne know about? And was he open to that idea? Oh yeah, yeah. See, early on, uh, everybody appreciated the box office at the Tennessee Territory. 
was accomplishing. And so what my plan was, was to merge the territories. Uh, you know, I went to Texas, you know about that. Uh, I went to buy AWA and we, uh, we agreed to everything and it was down to me showing up at the attorney's office and giving them the check. I think the number was three million for his territory. And uh, Vern said I have been sleeping on it and we haven't talked about Greg. I said, there ain't nothing to talk about. <laughs> and he said, well, if you don't have a place I said, Greg can wrestle, but he, he doesn't need to be in management. And so that deal fell apart. But we would have had uh, more television than Vince McMahon if those two deals had a conflict. Well, the Texas deal went through, but the AWA, because AWA went had Denver and Chicago and Milwaukee, which is, you know, major markets. Do you think that you saw the writing on, on the wall before most? Uh, like Terry Funk likes to say that, you know, he and his brother noticed that fans in Amarillo were coming up to him and saying, how come I don't see Tommy Wildfire Rich here? And guys like guys who they were seeing on WTBS, who they considered to be the big league, because they were on cable television. Um, and, and really, you know, Ole was aggressive. He started going, you know, into Baltimore, Wheeling, West Virginia, places like that where they had never promoted before. But it sounds like that, that you knew uh, back in 79 where the business was going and that uh, you, you, you had to make a move. And, and, and is that why you were, you were so pissed off at, at Lawler? Because he was such a key part of, of those plans, uh, being your CWA champion. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt like uh, – see, here's a, a story, and I, I forgot to put this in my book, but – I went up and got TV in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, Cincinnati, and a little town right outside of Cleveland. And Louis Tillet and Buddy Fuller ran it. And unfortunately, Buddy got greedy. And uh, the building managers called me and said, Something funny is going on, Jerry. So that blew up. But I was back that early. I knew that cable television would be the downfall because what allowed us, again, back to the suspension of disbelief, what allowed us to do that was that every market had three television stations, you know, the network stations. Then a few of them got uh, U stations, but, you know, they were not very powerful. And now all of a sudden there's the advent of cable television. And I said, you know, they're 
they're going to raise the curtain on the on the magic act and you know the fans will will know that Lawler's not the world champion or Fargo or whoever it happened to be so uh I had a deal with uh, USA Network, and Jim Barnett called and said, Jerry, we're friends. You're going to kill the business. And uh, so I I pulled it. Why did he say that? A huge, huge, a huge mistake. Well, because he knew that Memphis Wrestling would would be all over the country uh, and I got it. He knew that down at Channel Seventeen, even though it was powerful, it wasn't a superstation then, he knew he couldn't compete with Memphis T V. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I, uh, I tell this story all the time, Jerry. I, I was busting to get uh cable television and and where I lived, uh believe it or not, I'm not actually from Germantown. I, I'm from Bartlett. <laughs> Germantown was my was my gimmick when I was a manager, uh, but it but anyway in Bartlett, we, in my neighborhood, it was like one of the last to get cable TV. I didn't get it till eighty three, uh, and I can tell you that by the time I got it and watched Atlanta Television, which was still pretty good in eighty three, I think eighty two it peaked, but um, still pretty good in eighty three. Eighty, I and WWF Television, I saw for the first time. I could not believe how awful especially the WWF was and then and then somehow yeah. I got somehow I got a hold of Vern's TV where they did maybe two angles a year and was just bored to tears I, I you know it made me realize that I was in I as I suspected all along the wrestling capital of the world really yeah yeah well it um you know I I could go back and reflect and say, I wish I'd have done this. I wish I'd have done that. But when it gets down to it, I really don't because I've had, you know, a great life. And, uh, there would have been, there would have been a a number of problems had I done that. And, you know, I I just believe things happen for a reason. Now, um, do I think it would have been successful? Probably. But, uh, you know, Vince didn't pay any attention to any of the promoters, and he got cable TV, and, well, you know the rest of the story. Well, and it's interesting because I guess after you passed on that slot, for USA Network, that must have been the slot that went to Joe Blanchard's uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling, which yes. then Vince poached because I don't. I, their television was actually pretty entertaining. However, it, it, it was sort of Memphis-like, and, and that's a compliment. But they just went too far. Each, I mean, it was like hot shot each and every week now we had you guys had some crazy entertaining shows i think the year 1981 was the most entertaining year and and probably 82 right behind it of any promotion in the country as far as entertaining television but it wasn't like you guys were 
killing somebody every week or doing or dumping ho- a, a bucket of horse manure over somebody's head, which they did on Southwest almost every other week. It, you know, you guys, you guys knew when to turn it up and when to turn it down, you know, and right. so- Southwest didn't. And they eventually got thrown off the air and then Vince moved into the slot. And what's even crazier is that Vince was able to get, he called it all American wrestling with the premise uh, that he was going to showcase uh, other promotions from uh, around the country. And so he actually got yeah. people to send them clips of their local stars. So Vince knew exactly who to poach <laughs> when he went national. Yeah. But I noticed there was no Memphis uh, on those shows. So you probably knew right away what he was up to. Uh, yeah. and uh, But believe it or not, we we maintained a relationship because I remember one telephone call and I said, Vince, you're good, but you're not good enough to hurt us in Memphis. <laughs> well, and that was and, true for a long time. And I said that, I said that kind of facetiously because I knew just the exposure that my champion wasn't a champion everywhere would, would bring about the end sooner or later. It wasn't who had better TV or who was a better booker or writer. It was just it pulled the curtain up on the on the magic act. Right. And it's a and that's something that's that's totally lost. And you and I have talked about this before as well, that you know, even in its Haiti, a lot of people uh, I think point to uh, the early eighties and they say, ah, oh, back then the, you know, all, everybody believed I, I, not really. I, th- that's, I, you know, I don't think that, that any of us think that uh, uh, 80% of your fan base believed everything that was going on. Now, willingly were they able to suspend disbelief? Yes. But, but that's because you guys presented the program as if it were serious, as if it were a shoot. There was no winking at the audience like there is now constantly in WWE. Like, hey, we're all kind of in on this. Um, you know, I got what I I, uh, I point to this John Cena interview that he he lost the the so called World's Heavyweight Championship on a Sunday. He comes out on Monday Night Raw the next night. Happy go lucky, coming out smiling, slapping hands. The, and saying, ah, you know, you got me down, but I'll be right back. It, it, and just the total wrong vibe. I remember, I remember when Jerry Lawler won the world championship, he was almost in tears. You know, he had that moment with Lance Russell where they're talking about how he'd waited all these years for Lance Russell to say the words, Jerry Lawler's the world champion. And it, and it, it you know, it was a, it was a real moment. It was an emotional moment that we were, privy to um and that's one thing that i think you got that you and and jerry lawler and dutch mantel bill dundee all these great promo guys all these great wrestling minds they knew the emotion of of they lived it you know and the fans lived it too and i think that was a big difference in what's missing today yeah well i i used to when somebody new would come into the territory i'd go off in one of the little private rooms at Channel 5 or, or if it was at the Mid-South Coliseum. And one of the things I would tell them is the difference between us here and wherever you came from 
don't do anything in the ring that you don't believe. And then you'll have the secret of the Memphis style. If you can't believe it yourself, don't do it. And I think that's one of the things that's missing today. Yeah. But I'll tell you what's not missing. I just got through talking to Jeff. And Jeff said he gave that interview to NBC Sports. And he said, Dad, every network, every cable, and most of the major newspapers around the country have called about the WWE Hall of Fame induction. Now, you have to take your hat off to Vince McMahon if he can create a media arm to his company that will have the three network sports lines call because of an induction into the WWE Hall of Fame. That's miraculous. Yeah. Yeah, did you did you ever think that you would see that? <laughs> uh, no, no, I never imagined. Because, you know, we went out of our way to... Uh, I had a big fight with the uh, uh, Memphis newspaper because they kept writing negative articles. And I said, uh, let me tell you something. Television will be your downfall. You will ultimately go out of business for two reasons. One, television's instant news. You give the news the morning after. And the other thing is you're stupid because I'm the one that's paying your sports writer's salary with my ads every week. And you write about somebody getting shot in the parking lot and how dangerous it is to go to the Mid-South Coliseum. And he said, well, we have to report the news. I said, well... I happen to know because I checked with the news at Channel 5 and there were three murders last week and none of them happened at the Mid-South Coliseum. And you didn't write one word about them. So anyway, no, I never, ever thought that Vince could put together that kind of media machine. Because it's nothing short of phenomenal. Well, and I was really... I mean, you know, the, Olymp- the, the Olympics are going on, and the sports writers are calling <laughs> Jeff to get a story. I know. It's crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it was everywhere. I mean, and, and actually word got out uh, before they even announced it. And man, it was just like everywhere I looked, and even including some uh, mainstream sports sites, 
uh, were, were yeah. had the announcement. So uh, I think that says a lot, not only about WWE, but also a lot about Jeff, who I, on, on a personal level, even when you guys weren't speaking, you, you know, you and I initially talked back in 2009. Um, I told you my admiration for Jeff because the guy yeah. worked his ass off. Uh, he was put in an impossible situation, you know, has your son appearing on Memphis television right from the get go that it was such a brilliant angle to introduce Jeff. Uh, it got the last sellout at the Coliseum and you guys were off and running just red hot with Buddy Landale and Bill Dundee against Lawler and Mantell. Just br- absolutely riveting television that everybody still talks about to this day. But then he had to live up to being your son. And obviously there are going to yeah. be th- these comparisons to George Goulas. And all this kind of stuff, but Jeff was a Jeff was a real athlete, and he worked his butt off, and fought and scratched and clawed. I'm sure when he went to WWF, he had a it was not an easy locker room to win over, being your son, uh, but he did, and he had, at that match with Shawn Michaels that he had at an In Your House pay per view, a lot of people include, say that's one of their top ten matches that they've ever seen. Period. Um, anyway, yeah. I just, and that's just not, that's not me blowing smoke. I just, uh, I just really admire Jeff to be honest with you. When Jeff debuted, I kind of wrote him off. I just said, ah, he's just, uh, he's getting this push because his dad owns the company, but that's not the case. Jeff, Jeff, uh, Jeff worked really hard to, to, to become not only, uh, a guy who made a lot of money in the business, but one hell of a performer. So, uh, yeah. kudos to him. I'm, I'm glad, well, I'm glad he's getting his moment in the sun. Well, thank you. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> Chip off the old block, right? Yeah. Um, well, that's great. And and uh, are you are you going to be attending this, the the uh, ceremony? Yes, yes. Uh, my wife and I are going uh, to this New Orleans. I think. Yeah, that'll be that's going to be a good time. Yeah, and so we'll go down and make a little mini vacation out of it. Yeah, nice, nice. I mean, are, are all the grandkids going, or uh, no, no, okay. <laughs> um, not to New Orleans? Okay. <laughs> I'm, matter of fact, I'm broke. We just got back. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the Omni Homestead in Hot Hot Springs, Arkansas? Uh, I haven't. I mean, Hot Springs, Virginia. No. Uh-uh. Well, don't ever go. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they have it's beautiful. And uh it's one of the grandest old hotels that's ever been built. And the ski slopes are great. They make snow and and it's not like being in Vail or or Utah, but it's it's really nice for East Coast skiing, but it will absolutely break you. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'll keep that in mind. A meal for four adults and three children is $600. Good grief. No, it's awful. My goodness. Uh, hey, Jerry, really quickly, I, I, uh, I don't, again, I, I'll let you go here. You've basically, uh, answered all my questions and more. I feel like we've got two, two different shows worth of content here. Uh, but, uh, he's, this is a subject that, uh, that I get asked a lot about and, and I don't know, uh, the, the answer to it. 
Uh, I guess it's one of those unsolved mysteries of of Atlanta, but it has a, has a Memphis tie to it. Uh, you of course broke in Tommy Rich, and I had uh-huh. obviously newfound respect for. T- I always w- was a was a Wildfire fan uh, when I was a kid. My sister was a bigger fan, of course, uh, before he moved on to Atlanta and uh, and uh, you know became a huge star in the right place at the right time. Uh, the TBS uh, stage was expanding when he got there. Um, Barnett saw something in him and and took it and ran with it. And he arguably the number two, number three baby face in the country. If, if he had been willing to travel more, I, I think that, uh, that he could have even been even bigger. Um, when Barnett decided to put the, uh, or convince Harley race to, to put the world title on rich for a week, uh, he had just come off a heel run in Memphis in 1980. Some speculate, and I'm just, I'm just curious, want to bounce this off you. Uh, was that, was that run when he returned home while Lawler was uh, nursing uh, the broken leg? Was that to see – was it sort of a trial to see how he could work the heel style in case he got an extended run with the belt and could work the heel style? No, no, I don't think so. Uh, you know, Tommy broke in here, and uh, he was not strong enough at that time carried the territory. So I called Barnett and and told him I've got a guy that I think will help you with your uh, superstation. And Tommy went down and uh, then I called Barnett back and I said uh, what was the situation Lawler was hurt or I can't remember the circumstances. But anyway, he said, yeah, I can let you have Tommy back for a while. Yeah, that was in 1980. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. I'm just – it's so funny because people – Again, a friendship. Yeah. Um, you know, Jim and I had uh, – you know, I really respected him and uh, – you know, he he respected my promotion ability. Yeah, and that lasted to his death. Yeah, uh, I, I guess a lot of people who don't understand just how over Tommy was at the time, and it, and it was it, it, tremendous. I mean, he was a ter- tremendous star and a tremendous star. And I like to say, and I don't mean this as an insult at all, but Tom, Tommy had kind of a clumsy charisma. And I did, and and I did, and I mean that in the sense that it was that he was unpolished on his interviews, but the people believed. You know, it wasn't the slickest interview, it wasn't the best interview, but it felt real. And uh, yeah, and, and that goes back to what I told you earlier, Tommy. You know, I had him come out to the farm and <laughs> work for three or four hours and I'd work out with him in the ring I had there for 30 minutes. (laughs) But during that time, I would talk to him a lot and and explain to him that wrestling ability was not at the top of the list of whether you got over or not. But your attitude and verbal skills, and I said... 
Tommy said, I did terrible in school, Jerry. I don't know that I could ever make an interview. I said, you can have a conversation with me and keep your interviews conversational and don't ever say anything you don't believe. And Tommy did that. If you look back at, now I helped him along, you know, I still laugh about it. I said, he said, what do you, you have any suggestions for me today when I go out? I said, yeah, go out and tell them you're crazy. <laughs> and he said, what? I said, yeah, tell them, say, I'm crazy. I'm crazy as a fish in a car wash. I'm crazy <laughs> as a horse with no head. I'm a crazy kind of crazy. <laughs> and, and whoever he's wrestling, he said, and you're going to find out how crazy I am. And see, that's, it didn't make any sense, but that's Tommy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He used to always do the fired up. I'm fired up, baby. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but, it, but it was real, you know, and that's, that's who Tommy was. And I think the fans got a sense of that. And, uh, man, I just, I think the world of that guy, uh, I w- was fortunate to manage him when I was working your territory. And I remember I was going to have to miss TV on Saturday because I was graduating from, uh, Memphis state university of Memphis, uh, get him, yeah. get him a BA in journalism. And I told, I said, Oh, I, I was, we were leaving the Coliseum. And I said, I said, Oh, Tommy, I'm not going to be at TV Saturday. I'm going to be right back here at the Coliseum, which is where my, oddly enough, my graduation ceremony was going to be. Um, and I explained what was going on. He goes, and he hugged me and he said, uh, Hey man, put that, uh, put that sheepskin to work. Yeah. 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 Tommy was a good guy. Still is. And, 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 and it was funny because I actually had a number of people boo me when I got my, when I got my diploma at the Coliseum, but it, uh, that felt, I, I felt right at home. <laughs> well, that's a great compliment to your the fans that were booing didn't know it, but yes. And then I, and then I strutted off the stage, uh, much to the horror of my parents, uh, anyway, oh, well, Hey Jerry, I really appreciate you, uh, coming back on and, and clarifying some things for us. Uh, I think the whole mill mascaras situation makes a lot more sense now, now that there's constant context and what people need to understand is that the power of relationships, uh, back then and, and the strength of the brotherhood and, that's why this match took place. That explains the booking. Uh, and that's why Mill was so cooperative. I think we answered every, if there's still some doubts in people's minds, then I, I can't help you. <laughs> well, you know, talking about, and I don't mean to get philosophical at the end of this long winded conversation, <laughs> but relationships that I learned how to navigate the promotional waters has served me well my whole life. And it's, I think it serves everybody well if they will think about it and remember it. Um, when you call me, 
it isn't because I want to be on your show or I do it because of our long-term relationship that goes back to Memphis. And, and I think that Jerry Lawler and I have talked about it. Jeff and I have talked about it. The lessons we learn in the wrestling business will translate to any business you're in. And it's just important that you show everybody respect, build relationships along the way without thinking that you're going to get anything in return. Well, I'll get off my soapbox. No, I I, uh, I I appreciate you saying that, and I know that uh, that obviously there, there are other things you could be doing with your time, and I it means the world to me uh, that that you would take time out to uh, join us on this show, um, and especially kind of I know last week you kind of cut the promo on on Jim Cornette, and it it was a lot of fun, and I I so appreciate this, and uh, can't thank you enough, Jerry. Well, Jim, I can do that because Jim knows I love him. He's one of the, he's one of the great talents in this business. Oh, all uh, time. Yeah, absolutely. And I told him that. I said, "Here, I said you're one of my wrestling heroes." And in front, you know, yeah. I well, the first time I asked you about this match, it was in front of the entire cult of Cornette, and you said it was Pepe Lopez under the hood as Mil Mascus, and all the and your and your your fellow cult members, your deranged cult, they were all laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> so I was uh, I was uh, really giving him a hard time, but it, he did not have the balls, the tennis balls, to show back up here today. Uh, I guess maybe he's retired his tennis racket, but uh, I will uh, I will make sure that he listens to this episode uh, and and uh, hear your testimony, uh, which okay. which should convince him. But uh, at any rate, Jerry, take care. Uh, congratulations on uh, Jeff being inducted into the Hall of Fame. We got to get Jeff on here now. So see, see, yeah, yeah, give him a call. Well, uh, maybe when we get off the air, maybe you'll give me his number. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'll, uh, I'll I'll text it to you. Okay, sounds good. back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling and I guess special thanks to Jerry Jarrett for taking time out to speak with us and taking the stand to help us unravel this unsolved mystery of Memphis. Um, my next witness 
Uh, and I, I can't say that without laughing because he is a, uh, a good buddy of mine um, and obviously a big fan of Memphis Wrestling who has parlayed that into a career. He is the author of several Memphis Wrestling history books, uh, including one that is uh, aided to this controversy. Uh, his book on his most recent book on the Tennessee Athletic Commission and his findings there. Um, and it's fantastic uh, because, you know, you may have certain memories of how a card went. I remember the Lawler Bockwinkel 1979 match and I was there in attendance and I could have sworn that there were 10,000 people there. Well, Mark has the, the actual paid attendance uh, of everybody who was there, how much they were paid. And there were only 6,700 fans there, uh, actually paid attendance. Uh, but to a kid like me and the atmosphere, it just seemed like it was packed. And so uh, it's a tr tr tremendous book loaded with all kinds of facts and figures that you won't find anywhere else. I highly recommend it. It's my duty to introduce to you, after this l <laughs> incredibly long explanation, Mark James. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back on, Scott. Well, you're quite welcome, sir. And I believe you know why we are here today to discuss oh, yeah. to discuss the night in question, January 29th, 1979. I'm sure you've heard all the evidence uh, up, oh, to, yeah, 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 up yeah. to this point, and I have briefed you uh, on my latest findings, which actually comes straight from you, your <laughs> Tennessee record book, 1973 to 1979. Are you not the author of that book, sir? I am. Okay. Do you remember uh, the night in question that we were talking about, January 29th? Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, yes, okay. Definitely. It was a big okay. deal. Okay. Big deal. Now, uh, not only was that a big night for Jared Promotions, because it was the first time that the international wrestling superstar himself, Mil Mascaraz, Aaron Rodriguez was appearing in Memphis, but it was also my first time to attend the matches at the Mid-South Coliseum. Uh, but it was also a big night for promoter Nick Gulis over in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, because he signed the greatest card ever for Boutwell Auditorium. And I'm for not, that week. And I'm, for that week. And I'm not just whistling Dixie, though, because it, tr <laughs> it actually truly was a big card for Nick, because I'm not quite sure, but I believe it was the first time that he had brought in NWA World Heavyweight Champion Harley Race, who would be defending that title against Macho Man Randy Savage? And I think we both agree. Wow, I mean, what? I'm oh, sure yeah. that I'm sure that would have been an incredible match. Uh, and Nick did a lot of publicity for the event. In addition to the regular newspaper ad, he also managed to get. Uh, he also granted an interview with a local sport, sports writer and was talking about this card. And he also mentioned a grudge tag battle. Now, this is his uh, his second biggest program going at that time with Francisco Flores, the Mexican Angel, teamed with Bobby Eaton against the fabulous Freebirds, Michael Hayes, and Terry Gordy. Now, I ask you, sir, is it possible for Francisco Flores to appear as the Mexican Angel, teamed with Bobby Eaton, and also appear in Memphis that same night under a guise, a, a charade as a ringer, uh, working for Jerry Jarrett and a stretcher match with uh, Jerry Lawler and Jackie Fargo. Is that possible? Yeah, I believe so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, you know, Fargo was there and he was working for Nick. So yeah, sure. Why not? Okay. Oh, so you're <laughs> saying that, uh, okay. That by that time it was clear who had won the wrestling war. Uh, and yeah, it, it, was, it was over. It was way over. Yeah. And, and it seemed like as the year progressed, uh, more and more 
uh, Jerry Jarrett was trading talent with with Nick, and uh, it was pretty much. I, I I was talking to to Jarrett about it, and and I asked him uh, why he decided to do that, and why didn't he just take Nashville? And quite frankly, he said that he knew that Nick was extremely low on money. Uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, Nashville was going to be Jerry Jarrett's uh, before too long. And so he reached out to Nick. Uh, I think his mother, Christine Jarrett, played a role in that, sort of a, a mediator, and helped them bury the hatchet. So it's your contention that perhaps Jarrett could have called in a favor and said, hey, uh, would you mind if uh, Flores worked the show under a hood? Yeah. The only reason I say that, and it, it, it just—I've <clears throat> heard you know ten different arguments for and against it. To me, I just find it hard to believe that with someone who had the national notoriety of Mill, it wasn't even on the newspaper clipping. You know, there was no—I mean, basically the Saturday morning they made the call, just boom, ball, and there it happens. I just think it would have been, <clears throat> you know, at least in the newspaper buildup. Well, you and I both know, though, that that card often changed. Um, I mean, I would say probably 25% of the time the advertised main event was not what you got. Oh, yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, especially given the nature of t – and, and for people who are kind of, well, why would that be? Uh, because it was a closely guarded business at the time. They did not smarten up the commercial appeal. They trusted no one. Because they realized that if they, you know, had a card that uh, where a guy was, uh, if they sent them a card and it was obviously a guy who was about to turn babyface or turn heel on Saturday, they were not going to reveal that. They were going to book a, uh, a kind of a filler main event, and then there was going to be a big angle, and then you know they would just say, right. yeah, it was under it was understood that that the the card was subject to change, shall we say? Um, now. Uh, you know, I brought that up to to Cornette, and I said, "Well, if it if it was a ringer, then why not advertise it? You know, um, if they if this was the plan all along, I'm sure that Jackie Fargo was not a was not a last minute get. Uh, so why not build it up?" And Jim fired back, and again, this is a a logical point. Uh, Mill Mascaris's name. It, it meant a lot to me, and I know that that you knew who he was because, like me, you were a voracious reader. You could get, yep. you know, you read everything you could get your hands on at an early age, just like me. Uh, you read a lot of the after mags, so you knew who he was because Bill After yep. had this mad crush. Uh, you knew he was a big superstar. I have to think that's probably why all my begging finally paid off, and my uncle took me because that was my first card. Uh, because this guy who I thought was a combination of. Superman and Spider-Man uh, and flying all over the magazines was going to be in Memphis. Um, so uh, that, that could, you know, it, Cornette was yeah. saying that, that his name meant very little. So it didn't matter if he ever the big draw here was Jackie Fargo. That was his point. Oh, and, there, yes. and there's no denying that, that Fargo was called upon uh, somewhat sparingly. They used him brilliantly, I think. Uh, to pop the houses and and this one yeah. did uh, not a lot but i think a couple of grand i believe oh yeah i mean um you know it's just one of those things that i wish we would know the real deal but i just don't know if we ever will maybe one day the um 
because Channel Five, you know, Big Jack Eaton did do a quick little vignette that night. Yeah, well, so there's actually there there was tape. Yeah, he well, you and I talked about this before too. Uh, I, I don't remember. Uh, of course, I, I mean, I was there at the matches that night, uh, so I don't know if he did it that night. But I do know that I tuned in on Tuesday afternoon because he would always do his five thirty yeah. sports break, and he knew. I think begrudgingly yep. <laughs> he would yeah. he would show the wrestling because he knew that that, that would be ratings. Uh, so they always showed a clip from the main event on Tuesday, and they did in fact show Mil, Mil Mascaris or a guy dressed like Mil Mascaris, yeah, leaping off the top rope, going for for his patented flying body press. Lawler moving out of the way. Lawler and Fargo immediately he sell it and he sells the rib injury. Uh, yep. which some people say was the first time Mil Mascaris had sold. Uh, in the entire decade of the seventies. And then Fargo and Lawler put the boots to him and they haul his ass out yeah. on the stretcher. And so we agree on all of that, but the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but the question is, was it really Aaron Rodriguez? Um, yeah, I know. Like I said, I wish we could get a definitive, you know, am I absolutely 100% sure it was? No. Am I sure it wasn't? No. <laughs> this is wrestling for goodness sake. Well, tr- you know, truthfully, when I saw your, uh, you know, I think by now we can sort of let the cat on cat out of the bag uh, yeah. because it's one of many, one of many things you'll you'll discover in reading uh, Mark Street book. Uh, Francisco Flores is listed on the payout sheet. Aaron Rodriguez uh, is not, and so that seems to imply that it was indeed a ringer. And let's face it, Memphis does not exactly have a sterling reputation when it comes to masked men. Um, however, I think you'll agree that. Whenever you've asked Jerry Jarrett about a Mr. Wrestling, uh, that he's been forthright that it was Dickie Steinborn, uh, Dickie Steinborn. Yep. or if you asked about uh, Mass Superstar uh, in 85, before I could even finish the question, he said that was Jerry Stubbs. We did 80, that. 80. Uh, well, well, in 85, they brought Jerry Stubbs in. Uh, do you th- well, they did in 1980 when he fought uh, Billy Graham. No, that was, uh, as well. that was Jerry Novak, right? Was it Novak then? Okay, yeah, I'm flipping them. I'm flipping them. Okay. Yep, 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 yep. And, yeah, and actually, you told me that. I, 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 yep. I, I was curious because uh, I think I'd, I'd sort of tuned out of wrestling for a couple of weeks there because, you know, my favorite wrestler, Jerry Lawler, was on the shelf, and they were trying to build yep. up the reputation of the CWA belt again. And so they said that uh, instead of having a big tournament, they said that they were bringing in uh, the International Wrestling Superstar, I believe that's the way they build it, which yeah. you and I talked about, gosh, was was that Bill Eady, uh, who is one of those guys, I think you and I have also talked about, my short, that's on my short list. Like if I had to pick five guys who I wish had come through Memphis and worked an extended program with Lawler, Bill Eady would probably oh, yeah. be at the top of top, top top of that list. Yeah, easy, easy top five guy. I agree with you on that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, he said that Jerry Stubbs, the whole deal was uh, calling Mass Superstar because they wanted to line him up in a few with Dundee over the Superstar name. Uh, fair, fair enough. Uh, and one thing that does give me pause is not the fact that Mo Mascaris appeared in Memphis. I think what's what Cornette <laughs> is having trouble wrapping his head around, and me too, to be to be honest with you, even though I saw it with my own eyes, uh, is the nature of the appearance, the fact that it was as a heel, the fact that it that it was a stretcher job, and not only did he take the ride back to the dressing room, but was willing to have Fargo, which. 
we all know Fargo. This very well could have been an improv. He runs down, yeah. tumps the stretcher over, and continues to put the uh, put put the boots to him. Okay, now yeah. why would a guy? Now, if it was Terry Funk, we would have no problem believing that. Sure. Uh, but a guy like Mil Mascaris, it's hard to believe that he would do that given his reputation for being, shall we say, difficult to negotiate yeah. a finish and not exactly known. He's not, not exactly a Ricky Steamboat or a Ric Flair when it comes to selling. Right. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. 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 I, I just, um, like I said, I, I, I said, you read the book. It's like I lean towards it's not, it wasn't him. And I just, you know, there's so many of those questions about that. I just, you know, because I used to think it was. Yeah. And then the stuff like this comes up and, the, you know, and I fight with Jarrett says, he says uh, I don't know. I don't know. Because I know some things Jerry's, you know, kind of forgotten about some things. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. And so it's nothing against Jerry. He's not, I don't believe he's purposely lying. But I just, I, I don't know. It's not a lie. I know that. But I think he remembers in a certain way. I just don't know if. It's that way, unfortunately. Um, well, I, you know, I brought that up to 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 Jerry Jarrett, and I said, "Look, I said, I, I think that's what's that's the problem here, Jerry. The stretcher job. <laughs> yeah, it, that, it, it's a big. Yeah, I mean, you know, he just doesn't go along with one thing. He goes along with several. You know, he misses the big flying body press. And if you remember, after a little bit of the other way, what happened? I believe was Fargo ran up in the top and dropped the big knee across the chest. Could be. Um, I, I just, like that. I, I, did, I just remember them really putting the. I think I. I think maybe they. I think I don't. You know, I. I was look. I was seven. Yeah, I, was a, I was seven yeah. and three quarters. <laughs> <laughs> my birthday was a. My eighth birthday was in April. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was there, and yeah, I, I and I remember the finish for the most part. I can't yeah. tell you a damn thing about the undercard. I had I had no recollection oh, yeah. that Bill Dundee were, did his Condry, which probably was the best match of the night. Yeah. Um but uh it's funny that it's funny that you mentioned that. I I said that that's the pro- that's the problem, Jerry. And he said, "Well, honestly, when we were going over the finish, I said uh so this is going to happen then Idol's going to take the ride out on the stretcher." Not only did Bill agree, Bill interrupted and said, "Jerry, come on, I'm only, I'm, I'm just passing through here, and nobody knows me here. I'll do it." So he, so he volunteered. Volunteer. Yes. Now I know, and it, and it just, I started laughing. No, <laughs> I, I you know, I'm really. I said, so he asked to do the stretcher job. It's not anything that you talked him into, and he said, he goes, Scott. He's like, you've got to understand, it meant a lot to you and maybe 50 other people Yeah, <laughs> that it was Mil Mascaris. I said, I said, so, I said to him, Jerry, is it sort of a deal? I, you know, I, I, was in the, I was in the business for a little bit, but not long. Uh, it seems like to me that maybe he just had fun with it. And and it's like God. When do I ever get to play the heel? And he knew no. And he knew that Jarrett. He Jarrett said that uh, he told him he w- he wouldn't show it on TV. Which 
He sort of now. This is the Jerry Jarrett that we know. He did not show it on yeah. his TV, but he did air it on the. He let the local newscast uh, yeah. air it yeah. at least once, and you're saying it also happened on maybe Monday night. So maybe it aired. It might have. It might have been the Tuesday. I, I can't remember if it was the, the after the part or if it was the Tuesday, but I saw it the one time. Right. And but yeah, and it was. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever. Oh, uh, because you know, Mill doesn't have any memory of this. Well, no, uh, not. Well, uh, oh, go ahead. but here's the thing. Here's the thing. And this is uh, this is something that I didn't really consider before. He said, uh, you're, you're looking at this in a different way. He said, I'm looking at it from the stance of a, of a promoter. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it may be hard for you to, to fully grasp this. That And he wasn't being condescending. He was just explain, no. explaining something to me that uh, – he that at that time there there was a brotherhood in the wrestling profession, um, and if you had three or four allies, then that was a bond, and that was a bond that could not be broken. Um, and you kind of that that was the key to him actually getting the NWA's approval when he broke away from Goulas. The fact that. He had those relationships. Uh, he had yep. those relationships with Eddie Graham, uh, with uh, Jack uh, Atkinson, Fritz von Erich, uh, Jim Barnett, certainly, and Vern Gagne. And he said, another member of that circle, at least to me, was Salvador Luderoth, yeah. who I had befriended uh, at one of the NWA conventions, and our wives had hit it off. And he flew us out to Acapulco. He said, that is the key to this whole situation. Mm. Everyone, everyone who looks at this and says, oh, my gosh, how did Jerry Jarrett, first of all, how could he have afforded to bring him in? Because, you know, Memphis sometimes was not known for paydays, although Jerry paid much better than Nick. Yeah. Um, how could they have got How could First of all, how could they have gotten the date? And then how could they convince mill to do what we think is something huge and our eyes as fans is something big for real maskers to sell and take a, and do a job to, to take a ride on a stretcher do a stretcher job he yep. said he said but it's sort of like if i sent he said mill maskers was salvador luderos jerry lawler it was yep. his biggest star he was doing me a favor and he didn't ask mill to go to memphis he told Mill to go to Memphis. There was no asking. And in those days, you kind of did what, you know, your main promoter said. He, got, he said it's the equivalent of if Jerry Lawler went to work for Salvador in, in Mexico City, there would be no negotiation of a finish. Jerry yep. would do exactly what the promoter told him to do. And if he didn't, he knew that there would be hell to pay with me. And that's just the way it was back then. And so when he put it in that context of, you know, Mill doing the, you know, doing this, not because he wants to, and not because he's such a great guy, it's because he knows it's in his best interest, which I think we can all agree that Mill Mascaris has all been, has always been about his best interest. Oh yeah. And in this case, maybe that meant doing the honors for Baller and Fargo on a stretcher. Oh yeah. Okay, well, I've convinced Mark James. <laughs> I believe that about uh, I believe that about wraps this mystery up. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I think uh, I know, man. I, I know. Uh, hopefully, we I know. Well, there's just a lot of things like that. I mean, it, you know, there's so many angles you could do on it. I've heard the deal where, well, they got them and they didn't have time to get a license for Tennessee, so they did it. Hey, that makes sense. You know. Well, he said but, uh, he said it was more about and and Cornette brought up the fact that it was he goes oh he goes why would they do it? he goes we're talking twenty bucks but yeah. but Jared said he goes it was less less to do with the money and more to do with it was just like a hassle he's only he's only, he's just going to be here for uh-huh. one night I'm going to have him sit down and do this paperwork because I just I just said oh, it's crazy. well see that's the whole thing even with like I mean Andre had to fill the thing out and Andre you know. That's what was weird about it is, you know, and it, I, I, like I said, I don't think it was the money about it. I think it literally was just if it went that way because of that, it was just the time and have them to bother to fill one out and then have the stupid uh, Tennessee commission guy there to sign off on it. And because Mr. Coffee was no longer doing it by then. So they, you know, no telling what hoops they were having to jump through. Yeah. Uh, um, but then, Andre, but Andre, you know. but Andre, well, first of all, I think it's, it's hard. It would be hard to pull a ringer with Andre, you know, oh, sort of. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I think I think I think they knew that this was a one-time deal. I think that's what Jarrett's point was that, okay. it, you know, he wasn't going to be able to call yeah. Salvador and, and get like another date. This is sort of a once-in-a-lifetime kind of deal, and I think that's why uh, because you kind of look at it like, okay, well, if you get the booking, why use him as a heel? But that's so Memphis, though. <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> to take something that no other territory would do. I think I think Jarrett really wanted to have this star come in and you know make Jerry Lawler look strong. Um, yeah. Oh and, yeah. You know, and it and I. But you know, but if you flip it over and look at it, how could he not with Fargo coming back? You remember the old because uh, I'm sure you've talked about it with Corny and Junk, but Azuma against Stomper. Oh, you know, uh, they thought that was the uh, sellout. No, no, no. It was the Fargo's reuniting yeah. that really bumped those cards. Yeah. So, I mean, and it had been over two years since Fargo had been here. Yeah. I guess it was late 76, maybe, was last time he was here. I don't know if he ever showed up before the split in 77. I don't think, um, yeah. He might have. I don't, I don't know. I don't So, yeah. it had been well over two years yeah. at that point. So, you knew the crowd was going to pop for Fargo. But, I don't know. I don't yeah. like it, you know, and then you got the deal. You know, maybe he was really supposed to come to Birmingham and do that. And when the when the cards started breaking down, maybe they said, "Hey, bring him to Memphis." Yeah, they might not have been able to pay him. Well, uh, yeah, I I know that. I don't uh, know. I don't know. There's just a lot of wild cards in there. Yeah, and uh, you know, Idol uh, Idol worked uh, mascaras in Japan. Uh, yep. less than, okay, well, I, I th- almost a year to the day. Uh, he says it was the same guy. Uh, yeah, no, he does. He does. Uh, uh, but, you know, again, we, we, we both know that wrestler, all wrestlers, and of course, Jerry Lawler <laughs> is, <laughs> yeah. is of no help because he doesn't remember the match yeah. at all. You, whether, whether, you could call Jerry right now and say, Jerry, what'd you have for lunch? Said, I had lunch today. <laughs> I know that was it. I, I I rode to Louisville with him back in '96, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is my chance to ask him all the questions I've always wanted to ask, and to ask him about my interview style. And instead, I asked, I did get around to asking him, and I mentioned the match. He goes, "We brought Mil Mascaras in." <laughs> and I went, "Yeah, stretcher match, Jackie Fargo. He did the stretcher job." I don't know. Hey, anyway. Uh, listen to this. And he pulled out a book of pickup lines 
And he proceeded to, it was like, if I could do the alphabet over, I'd put you and I together. <laughs> and he proceeded to do that for three hours. Wow. Until the book was done. And then he promptly fell asleep for the next three hours. So that was the extent of my conversation. You know, they say, they say, what's missing today with all these young punks? They don't get to, <laughs> they don't get to ride with the veterans. And really yeah. learn the business. Well, there you go. Uh, I didn't learn much from from Lawler except how to maybe uh, how to pick up women. Uh, there you go. But he also he also shared with me his secret for get getting rid of uh, fast food trash. On, oh yeah, on the way to the matches, which I don't. I know Jim Cornette has covered a number of those topics, uh, which led to the birth of the burger towel. Do you have a Jim Cornette burger towel? I do not have one yet. I've heard about it. I think they're great. Uh, I can tell you I've seen it's a real thing. Oh, it is? I have actually seen it. Oh, yes, it's real. I think he sold $10,000 worth of these. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I meant before they were merchandised, uh, it was a real thing. Oh, I see. Um, Okay, okay. It was a real deal. He just would have, yeah. I mean, he's all about getting there, 20 to point B and don't stop. Absolutely. Now, uh, I don't know if he does the same technique, but I was with uh, Lawler uh, and Brian Christopher and Brian Lawler, kayfabe, uh, Tony Williams, Stacy Carter, who is also uh, a real joy to travel with, uh, and the king himself at the wheel. We stopped by Captain D's on Sycamore View before heading, Ooh. To, heading to Nashville. Oh, I bet that's a nice, nice, <laughs> I bet that sits well in your belly. It's oh, about yes. three hours. Oh, yes. Uh, so after we're done, Stacy asked for our boat-shaped containers. Uh, we handed those over. She tied it up neatly. And as Lawler is going down the interstate, she rolls down the window and throws it out. <laughs> and I, 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 I went, what, what, whoa, what, 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 what are you doing? Like any, any sane, rational person would, would say, uh, it's like, you almost hit an Indian on the side of the road. And now, he, and now he's crying. Um, <laughs> And, she, and and everyone looked at me and erupted with laughter. Like, oh, Bowden, oh, whoa, oh, we're hurting the environment. Oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> he goes, and I think a lot of goes, ah, some convict I'll have to pick up. <laughs> oh, lordy. Oh, man. Secrets, secrets from the road, uh, friends. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Mark, while I have you here, uh, thank you for commenting on this ongoing. Oh, absolutely. Well, I don't think we have definitive proof that it was indeed Mill Maskers who was in Memphis on January 29th, 1979. But I think we all agree it was definitely somebody wearing a Mill Maskers mask. I think uh, I think we have at least gotten that far in this discussion. Uh, I think in this latest round of testimony from Jerry Jarrett, what was most fascinating to me was the fact that he stressed that it was the relationship that he had with Salvador Luteroth that made Mill Maskers so willing to put over the local heroes, Jerry Lawler and Jackie Fargo, on the night in question. Uh, Brian, what was your uh, impression? Uh, it, did, did that testimony uh, affect you in any way and, and sway you one way or the other? I really don't know what to think anymore, to be, to be quite honest with you. Like you said, I'm certain that someone was wearing a Mil Moskris mask in Memphis on that night. Who it is, I don't know. I see both arguments. 
even if you're someone who believes that Mil Moskris was indeed there in Memphis that night, you still have to admit it's a ridiculous premise that Mil Moskris showed up and then said, Jetty, Jetty, please let me do a stretcher job tonight. Please, please. It's just, it's so, there's no other story about Mil Moskris where he's so giving to a promoter or another wrestler. So I don't know what to think, but I certainly look forward to the continued search for the truth here. Yes, and I'm working actually very hard to get Mil Maskers himself on this program as soon as next week. No promises, but we are indeed working on it. Well, for Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden saying Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden. You can follow Brian at Great Brian Last. You can also find me on Facebook at Kentucky Fried Wrestling. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N. And also take time to visit the Kentucky Fried Wrestling store at KentuckyFriedWrestling.BigCartel.com. We've got a wild array of Memphis merchandise that uh, is you won't find anywhere else. It's done in the fantastic Hanna-Barbarian style of artist Travis Heckle. And we've also got uh, some brand new shirts going up this week, one of which features Jerry Gray. And all proceeds from that shirt will be going directly to Jerry's GoFundMe campaign. So uh, be sure to check that out. Well, we'll see you here next week for some more Kentucky Fried Wrestling. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling. <laughs>